0: We didn't want to see the water come from the rock. There were nine of us in total on the backpacking trip. Eight grouchy, skeptical pilgrims who did not care to see the waterfall. And one extremely enthusiastic leader who was convinced it was going to change our lives. We'd been hiking with heavy packs for four days already, and the plan was to go a few miles upriver, make camp early, and then hike to a place where water comes pouring out of the solid rock wall of the Grand Canyon. It's called Thunder Falls, and the only way to see it is to hike the Grand Canyon backcountry for over 23 miles through some pretty intense wilderness. We took the Bill Hall Trail and camped on the high rock flats of the Esplanade our first night in the middle of an unexpected rain and windstorm. Then we hiked through Surprise Valley down to Deer Creek for night two. Day three was very difficult. The temperature in the bottom of the canyon is as much as 20 degrees warmer than it is at the rim. And despite it being October, temperatures were in the 90s. The combination of sweat, adrenaline, and plain old fear as we descended steep cliff faces and scrambles meant that when we reached the Colorado River at the bottom of the canyon, we were spent. Well, eight of us were spent. Our leader, Steven, was having a wonderful time. He didn't stop having a wonderful time. Even when one of us almost stepped on a giant rattlesnake curled up in the center of the path, and even when, on the next day, he accidentally led us the wrong way, literally up a creek in the water for almost an hour. So maybe you can understand our skepticism when we finally hit the campsite afternoon the fourth day and contemplated maybe just staying there and not making a special trip to Thunder Falls. It's not far, Stephen promised us, just up that trail. He regaled us with stories of how magical and legendary the falls are, how, how pure they are, water bursting from rock after traveling through miles of stone. The falls form Thunder River, which runs a half mile into Tapete's Creek, making it the shortest named river in the world. So we went, picturing a short jaunt up a hill and around a corner. One person even wore his flip-flops. Friends, it was the most terrifying two-mile climb of my life. We walked on cliff faces with six inches of ledge while trying not to imagine falling hundreds of feet to our deaths. Flip-flop guy was livid. We arrived at Thunder Falls with murder in our hearts and complaints on our lips. Stephen was baffled. He was still having the time of his life. (laughs) Our reading from Exodus tonight, like the story I just told you, is something called a complaint narrative. The Hebrew scriptures are full of them, and they follow a predictable pattern. First, the people encounter a potentially existential threat. Second, they complain to their leadership about it. Often, some version of, our lives were better when we were slaves back in Egypt, or, why did you bring us out here to die? Third, their human leaders go to God with the complaint. And fourth, God saves them through some kind of combination of divine power and an interaction with the natural world. So there are many things we could stop and linger on in this particular complaint narrative passage. Moses' fear of the people, as he conveys their displeasure to God, may draw to mind how often we blame the people in charge, For decisions that really all of us make together. This was definitely true on our hike to Thunder Falls with all of us angry at Stephen despite each of us choosing to hike when we could have stayed at camp. Or we could appreciate the symbolism of God requiring Moses to take others with him, a precursor of establishing a council of elders to help him spread out the cares and costs of leadership. Or the beauty of using Moses' staff. It's the same staff that God used to render the waters of the Red Sea undrinkable after Pharaoh's army perished there. But that's not what caught me reading this text this week. What I was struck by is how unbothered God is by all that complaining. Over and over again in Exodus, the people complain about their decision to follow God's rescue plan for them. And Moses complains about the faithlessness and impatience of the people. And yes, sometimes God also gets frustrated. The golden calf situation comes to mind. But for the most part, like in our passage today, God just responds by providing for them. Water comes from rock the people are cared for in their legitimate distress. We tend to remember the complaining people, but let's also notice that no matter how annoying they become, God still takes care of them. This seems like basic attachment behavior to me. For 40 years, the people of God have to rely on God alone. They cry out like hungry infants who cannot see anything but their own hunger and thirst, and God shows up with food, water, light, commandments, whatever it is they need. Over and over, God provides in the midst of their drama, their fighting, their wailing and crying and complaining. That's how humans attach to our caregivers, our partners, our faith communities. We complain. And we are heard. We speak our needs and they are met. We cry out for water and there it is coming out of a rock. I feel like I should tell you about Thunderfalls. It was further to get to and scarier than I expected. There were no pools of water at its base large enough to swim in, which was another thing Stephen had sort of led us to expect and it was an entire river of water bursting out of a wall of rock. We drank it, we marveled at it, and even though I was so mad at my friend Stephen, being in the presence of that mighty waterfall in the middle of the desert changed me. Here's a confession something I should probably tell you, all the people I did this trip with are clergy. Most of them are Episcopal priests like me, and then there's one weirdo who's a Lutheran pastor. After we drank the water and splashed each other and took a lot of slow motion videos and photographs that most of us have never looked at since, we gathered our tired, frightened, vulnerable selves into a circle. The mist of the waterfall cooled our hot tempers and tired bodies, and we prayed Eucharist together. I remember feeling deeply grateful to be in the presence of something as inevitable and miraculous as that waterfall. Even now I know in my body that it is there, pouring from the rock, a source of water that feeds the Colorado River, which provides for much of what lives in the southwest of our nation. It is a miracle, and it exists whether we hiked to it or not. And the fact that we complained the whole way there, and a lot of the way back, to be honest, did not lessen the immensity and promise of its provision. That feeling of gratitude, it's similar to the feeling that keeps me coming back to this table. What we do here in the Feast of Eucharist is just as inevitable as thunderfalls, just as nurturing as the water that poured from the rock at Massa and Meribah, names that literally mean complaint and quarrel. I can arrive at this table any old way I happen to be, a litany of complaint in my mouth, hopelessness in my heart, fatigue in my body, and the river of God's love that pours forth from this sacrament remains. God blesses me anyway. God loves me anyway. Just as much as the times I show up eager to receive. I know that we here at CODA have a lot of decisions ahead. Discernment about where to worship and what shape our life together might take. My hope for you, for us, is that we remember we can come to this place any which way we happen to be, and God's love will pour out like a river, ready to nurture our hearts and our souls. The future we're called into can look all sorts of ways, too. As long as we continue to come to the river together, God's love will keep on pouring down, blessing our hearts, and quenching our thirst for belonging, hope, justice, and care.